Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we're going to probe a comedy of errors that started with a seemingly clever plan by Orange Free State President Steyn to dispatch a diplomatic mission to Europe in order to drum up support. Then we'll swing past Mafeking in the northwest of South Africa, where Lord Baden-Powell was facing General Sneemon of the Boers. Baden-Powell is famous for launching the World Scout Movement. It's also the town where the famous South African journalist Sol Plaiki was based during the war and where he worked as a translator for the British. This is important because from his experiences, Plaiki was then part of the creation of the political party called the African National Congress 10 years later. It was Plaiki's fluid oratory and clear-minded writing that helped launch the party and his experience in Mafeking sharpened his mind about politics. So many roads lead to Mafeking and equally from Mafeking to the present. But first, a small matter of Messrs. Fischer, Volmerans and Vessels. These names popped up in Frieda Schlossberg's diary. You'll know by now that we've been following her updates. Frieda was a 16-year-old schoolgirl when the war broke out and she lived in Pretoria. In podcast 27, we heard how she reported in her diary dated 10th of March 1900 from the farm Balmoral that... Today we read of the sudden departure for Europe of a deputation consisting of Messrs. Fischer, Vormorans and Vessels. The reason for their departure is unknown. Well, the reason is now well known. Wim Paul Kruger had asked the British to consider negotiating an end to the war based on a major misconception. He thought they would tire of the thousands of casualties that had been racked up and to cut their losses. They would prefer to negotiate allowing the Boer republics of the Transvaal and Orange Free State to maintain their independence. However, the British government, which was in some trouble over the war, was not in any mood to allow the Boer upstarts to dictate any terms. Wim Paul Kruger himself had managed to evade capture at Poplar Grove, which was west of Bloemfontein, as Lord Roberts's column approached. There's a famous story about one of the shells fired by Roberts's artillery falling just behind Kruger's carriage, and he is reported to have remarked, so, that is one of the Queen's pulls. However, the reality had hit home. The Boers were defeated in the Free State as Bloemfontein fell in March. But General Christian de Vett had another of his long-term master plans up his sleeve. So, the burghers were tired of the war, let them go home. He ordered the commanders home but to return to their posts by March 25th. His decision incensed General Piet Joubert, ostensibly his officer commanding, who said... Do you mean to tell me you're going to give the English a free hand? To which de Vett replied, I cannot catch a hare, General, with unwilling dogs. A war council or Kriegsrad was held 215 kilometers north of Blumfontein at a town called Kroonstad, which voted in favor of de Vett's idea. He was not alone. We've heard how General de la Rey was also of the opinion that they should not destroy their army by facing off against Lord Roberts's massive force, but live to fight another day in another way. The germination of the guerrilla war tactic, which had been planted virtually at the start of the war, was now beginning to grow green shoots. Kruger's note, meanwhile, to Lord Salisbury, the British Prime Minister, fell on deaf ears. Salisbury sent a letter back to Kruger saying the British government would not allow the Boer republics to remain independent. It was at this point that the blurred lines between myth and reality really put paid to the Boer president Steyn's clumsy diplomacy. 
Steyn, the Free State President, held out hope that international forces would come to their aid. He told supporters that he'd heard the Russians were going to attack Herat in Afghanistan and therefore threaten India, the British Empire's jewel in its crown. Kruger was not so sure. Anyway, emissaries sent by Kruger and Steyn, Messrs. Fischer, Volmerans and Vessels, were travelling to European states which harboured sympathy for the Boers, Holland, France, Germany and Russia, amongst others. Kruger was not as sanguine about their chances of success and privately told his inner circle they would fail. Kruger believed fervently in God's love for the Boer nation. All they had to do was fight like David versus Goliath. He conflated a possible victory over the British as a triumph of good against evil. He was also steeped in race purity mythology and was incensed when he heard that Baden-Powell, the British commander in the besieged town of Mafeking, had armed black soldiers to fight the Boers. Baden-Powell had armed black soldiers, and later this fact morphed into an Afrikaner narrative during apartheid that all English speakers were ostensibly to be distrusted as they were liberal and thus working with black South Africans to destroy Boer culture. The fact that the English armed blacks was central to the Boer philosophy post-war and was faulty. The Boers had armed blacks too, but they were seen as defensive troops, not directly acting against the British. We'll come to this debate later. The hatred that some Boers felt for the English was amplified by the coming of the concentration camps, which included a form of disease-ridden ethnic cleansing, which remains a crucial narrative to this day, and an embarrassment for the British. Meanwhile, the erstwhile emissaries were en route across the Atlantic to Europe and diplomats from Russia, Germany, France, the United States, Holland, Belgium, Italy, Austria and Switzerland, based in Pretoria, were then briefed about the telegram to Salisbury. However, the British government's firm response led to shattered diplomacy for the Boers. The Dutch, for instance, wrote to Kruger that the British government's resolute statement ruled out any possibility of intervention. The French said any attempt at helping the Boers directly would be futile. So did the Germans, and eventually all other nations turned down the Republic's cries for help, except the United States. But they offered to help the British instead. Washington sent a telegram to London stating that they would, in fact, help the British cause, albeit that there were numerous Americans fighting on the side of the Boers. The Americans were told in no uncertain terms by the British that their help was not required, which was ironic considering what was to happen in the coming two world wars. Diplomacy to end the Anglo-Boer War had failed. Even with Queen Wilhelmina of Holland appealing to her uncle, the German Emperor Wilhelm II, to approach Queen Victoria directly to push for the recognition of Boer independence. But Emperor Wilhelm II refused. The Germans and Belgians were conducting their own scramble for Africa, along with the French, and didn't want the British messing around with their colonies. But what of this note in history concerning Lord Baden-Powell, stuck in a tiny town called Mafeking? What was going on there? He had been cut off from help since October 1899. In our early podcasts in this series, we outlined how the three towns, Ladysmith, Kimberley and Mafeking, had been surrounded by the Boers. Of the three, Mafeking was by far the most far-flung and the last to be relieved. By that time, it had entered the lexicon of the English language, providing a verb to Mafeking, which was to leap about joyously and was coined after the town was relieved. 
Apart from Sol Plaiki and Lord Baden-Powell, the other incredible character in the story of Muffet King was Boer Commander General J.P. Snaimon. He was described as a leader of great and quiet patience, and was such an inspiring leader that Baden-Powell detested the memory of him for the rest of his life. Although Snaimon liked his brandy a little too much, he was of the opinion, as he surrounded Muffy King, that the Boers could starve the British to death inside the town while keeping thousands of troops cooped up in the hot and dry north and away from the crucial battle zones in the Free State and Natal. Strange things happened in Mafeking, as they do in all desert towns. For example, on Sundays, the Boers walked over to the British lines and engaged in trade in cigarettes, chocolates, food and other sundries. For bundles of newspapers, the Boers demanded a little whiskey. The newspapers came from Johannesburg to the east, brought by stagecoaches and also carrying the wives of some of the Boer burghers. These same wives would often be given the task of firing a shot from one of the guns in the direction of Muffet King. Only an exotic African war could produce such a scene, a Boer wife in her frock and cuppy pulling on the firing cord of an artillery gun and bang, off would fly a shell to strike a house in Mafeking. Stranger too, the Boers could never really entrap Mafeking or enclose it. General Snayman, the brandy drinker, didn't have enough men. From the early days, Baden-Powell's men perfected a system of communication, allowing him to send and receive messages from as far afield as Cape Town via Bulawayo to the north, then to Baira in Portuguese East Africa, and then onto a ship to the Cape. Bechuana land was crucial, what is today's Botswana. Bulawayo is in Zimbabwe and was a new town just created. Messengers left for Bechuana land three nights a week. From there, letters and telegrams continued normal service via Bulawayo. One of the officers, for example, called Godly, wrote to his wife continuously, and she wrote back from Bulawayo. She also sent medicine. However, on the 5th of December, both the Boers and British were battered by a massive storm, one which breached the town's defences. Once again, it was Africa's incredible weather that was to prove somewhat challenging. The wind started in the afternoon, blowing hard across the plain. The deluge passed over the Boer camps, then hit Mafeking. It was a flood, and Mafeking lies in a small depression surrounded by gentle slopes. Also on these slopes were the British earthworks, which were swept away. Men's belongings were destroyed, the carriages and carts were stuck in the mud, troops were knee-deep in streams of water, where moments before there had been desert sand. Had the Boers attacked at that moment, They would have easily overrun the town, but they too were trying to gather themselves bedraggled, and some even decided to leave and head back to Johannesburg. Sol Plaiki wrote, Tuesday 5th, I had a busy time today. A white man was charged with committing rape on a native girl. The police rescued her off him and made a prisoner of him. I interpreted in this case, and just when the evidence was about to reach the filthiest Superior authorities, military, demanded my services, and I departed. The soldier who committed the act went to trial before a judge in the next quarter, while Plaiki returned to his position soon after the deluge and wrote, Rations were destroyed, kits washed away, in one case a man nearly drowned. The woman's lager trench was an underground canal. The Cape police had an hour's diving in the seven-foot-deep coffee-coloured pool for maxim ammunition. Plaiki's famous work is merely called Mafeking Diary, and his descriptions of events are full of his combination of ironic wit and flowing storytelling. 
The next day, Wednesday the 6th of December, he writes, At 3pm I went to see Vera Stent on business. We settled for a chat in the open air when we were unsettled by a loud bang, just at old Geren's blacksmith shop, exactly opposite where we were. We looked and saw things mighty gloomy in the blacksmith shop. Grown-up folks screaming in the dark smoke like piccaninnies, small children, while old Gerans could be seen, his face as black as that of a corner man in McAdoo's vaudevilles. Sol Plyke describes how one of the many keepsakes of Muffy King were the unexploded shells, which fetched high prices, once they'd been made safe, of course. Gerans' job was to remove the gunpowder from the shell. Plyke continues, Mr. Gerans had been doing many of them, and as there are exceptions in all cases, this particular one stood no molestation, but burst with the vigour of a shell direct from Sanna, the Boer gun, knocked out poor Mr. Geran's left-hand fingertips right off, blackened his face with powder, tore his trousers and his vest to pieces. As for Mr. Green, his assistant, it went for his leg, its favourite part, so severely that it had to be amputated. But an unfortunate person, a refugee from Johannesburg named Smith, happened to be passing in front of the scene, had both his legs fearfully battered. When I reached there, he lay quiet, and the poor fellow died shortly after. One moment the opponents were swapping tobacco, and the next, amputation. Pikey was in an interesting position of power, albeit he was a seemingly lowly translator. He was suffering from the effects of the siege, surviving near misses, and writing constantly. To tell the story of Muffy King, we must wind back the clock to Christmas Day, 1899. Eddies of hot wind swept across from the Kalahari to the little town on the edge of the desert. The flies buzzed about. Occasionally, a stronger wind blew sand and dust into the trenches, clogging men's mouths and noses while the sun beat down. It was the hot season, 38 degrees Celsius. Ideal time to burrow into the earth, which is what the British had been doing for more than a month. As with the conflicts and siege towns to the south, the Boers built extensive trenches, while the British eventually encircled their town with their own burrows. By Christmas Day, the siege had taken on a bizarre rhythm. At daybreak, there was the whine and thud of a shell. A machine gun would stutter once or twice later in the morning. By 8.30 at night, a Boer gun nicknamed Sanna fired a single shell into the town as a reminder they were at war. Sol Plytke writes, A really lovely morning after last night's rain. I went to sit on the veranda and drank deeply of the soft, balmy air and enjoyed the atmosphere with the sentiments of one watching a classical show of myth and melody. As one of the British employees, he was stuck and missing his family. The black residents of Mafeking lived in a township like all South African towns, and he heard the youngsters excitingly going about their Christmas day. But he was alone and continued writing. Lady Sarah Wilson sent down a collection of toys and sweets for distribution amongst the children of our village. Contented little black faces musing over their gifts reminded me of a little fellow far away, who enjoys whatever he gets at the expense of the comfort of a bewildered mother, deserving a Christmas box from his father, but unable to get it. It squeezed out of my eyes a bitter tear. His own son was far away in Johannesburg. The next day, on Boxing Day, Lord Baden-Powell ordered an attack on a Boer outpost called Game Tree Fort, which lay around four kilometres from the town's northern defence. In Brian Gardner's book called Muffy King, 
a Victorian legend, he explained that the officer corps in the town had been persuading Baden-Powell to take a more active part in the war. It was such an open secret that for more than a week, the Times correspondent called Mr. Hamilton had lain awake all night in expectation of the attack on Game Tree Fort. There were a number of reasons for targeting this fort, including the fact that it was considered poorly constructed and defended. Baden-Powell also knew that one of the British troop contingents based in Bulawayo in the then Rhodesia and headed up by Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Plumer was moving in the area of the railway far to the north, although at that stage Plumer was still hundreds of kilometres away. Of course, if the correspondent of the Times knew of a plan to attack the fort, then so did the Boers. Their spies in Mafeking had told them this was likely, and even suggested the date of the attack was in fact Boxing Day. By the 26th of December, the commander of the Boer unit, General Butter, had been expecting the attack for two weeks, and all Boer defensive positions had been strengthened. Baden-Powell, in turn, was made aware that the Boers knew of his plans, but still he didn't cancel the attack. As it happened, Game Tree Fort was both well-constructed and well-defended, while also well-placed on the top of a rise with an easy command of all its approaches. 260 men were detailed for this operation, consisting mainly of men of the Protectorate Regiment with artillery and Bechuanaland rifles in support. Bechuanaland rifles featured black soldiers. So there goes the myth of the white man's war. Baden-Powell was an excellent scout, but was not an excellent general. He preferred to use the armoured train, even though he'd heard of the disasters befalling these trains in Natal, where the Boers blew them up and then picked off the soldiers using snipers. Early on the 26th, the train moved quietly out of Mafeking, while men of the Protectorate Regiment, who had left earlier, lay hidden in the grass around two kilometres from Game Tree Fort. At that moment, the artillery opened up, and the train ground to a halt far from its original planned stop, the Boers had ripped up the line in expectation of just such a move, so what followed was really a blunder. The original plan was for the train to reach its position close to Boer lines, then give a piercing blast of its whistle to let the artillery know that the hidden troops were beginning to move forward and therefore to stop barrage. The train whistle blasted all right, and the artillery ceased fire, but the train was hopelessly short of the Boers in Game Tree Fort, and could not continue using its own guns on the defensive positions as planned. So Captain Vernon's regiment rose to its feet from the tall grass, only to face the Boers looking through their parapets and armed to the teeth. The British thought the fort was a mere earthwork, But as they marched up the hill towards their enemy, Captain Vernon realised with shock that it was actually an immensely strong blockhouse. Not only that, it featured a double layer of loopholes and a steel-enforced sandbagged roof. Furthermore, the Boer night watch was in the midst of being replaced by their day watch, so there were actually double the number of Boer burghers at the fort at that very moment. Things went downhill for Captain Vernon and his men in more ways than one. The regiment was made up of conscripts, not regulars, but still they didn't flinch as they marched straight into the Boer hail of bullets. They actually reached the blockhouse and then discovered with horror that they couldn't climb over the outer walls because there was a sandbagged roof. A complete disaster awaited. While the British fired through the loopholes and thrust their bayonets into the gaps, the men began to be shot down. One of the first was poor Captain Vernon himself, shot straight through the head, 
dying instantly. A sergeant took over and ordered the attack to continue. A second unit of the Protectorate Regiment now moved forward under the command of Captain Fitzclarence. They stumbled over the bodies of their comrades, but failed to penetrate the fort, which bristled with high-powered rifles. Eventually, back in King, Baden-Powell called off the attack when a breathless messenger told him of the destruction. Out of Captain Vernon's squadron, two out of three were casualties, 54 men injured, 24 killed. Once the attack was ended, the Boers then emerged from the blockhouse to help the Red Cross stretcher-bearers carry the British casualties down the slope and back to their train. Times correspondent Hamilton wrote, The heavy vapour from the shells still impregnated the air, and hanging loosely over the felt were masses of grey-black and brown-yellow smoke clouds. Boers on horseback and on foot were moving quickly in all directions. The scene was intensely pathetic, and everywhere around us there were dead or dying men. One Boer tried to relieve the badly wounded Fitzclarence of his sword. Hamilton writes, an ambition which was successfully resisted by Fitzclarence himself. The day became known as Black Boxing Day in Mafeking, and when the train arrived back at the town carrying its wounded, citizens were waiting, and Hamilton continues writing. It was greeted by a large, silent, depressed, and somewhat bitter crowd. A fearful mistake was made, all due to our not having carefully found out what we were going to attack. Lives had been thrown away for no purpose. Two Victoria Crosses were won that day by men of the Protectorate Regiment, the Citizen Regiment, which the British Army Officer Corps thought almost useless. They were now regarded as extremely useful. In his general orders, Baden-Powell describes the attack as a brilliant example, although he didn't specify of what. But he blames himself for the failure, which of course is accurate. His last note in this blunder was a bit of a gobsmacker, however. With bland aplomb, he sent off a dispatch saying the action had been satisfactory in that the enemy would have noted in his words the fatal results of storming a position. But by January, food is running out. Palaiki writes on Wednesday, the 24th of January, that white people are now going to buy food in rations and be compelled to buy small qualities, same as blacks. I have often heard black folks say money is useless as you cannot eat it. Now I have lived it and experienced it. The thing appears to be going from bad to worse. The big gun is hammering away at it. It was particularly cruel today. One of the shells hit on the market square this morning. It bumped right up and singled out old Mashweshwe's hut one and a half miles away, entered the hut from the back, decapitating two women and wounding three brothers severely and one not dangerously. The old boy was not there. Writing of horrors became Sol Plyke's staple update in his diary, coupled with his ability to move between the black township and the white town. An interesting view. We'll hear more about this complex town next week as we continue the story of Muffet King. So we'll call a halt to proceedings at this point. Please remember to like our podcast on iTunes and to pop in at our website, abwarpodcast.com. You can also direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. See you next week. Goodbye. Missari Maresa Lekoi Dirkenseu Meskadetek Virgakrei En zonder gedal langs die moeier Vierste waal het zee Vroorlogsdag geblei 
O breng mij terug naar jouw transvaal, daar waar mijn zaren woont.